Welcome to the Kook Center Podcast, and here's your host. They got a name for people like you, hi. That name is called recidivism. Repeat offender. Not a pretty name, is it, hi? No, sir. That's one bonehead name, but that ain't me anymore. You're not just telling us what we want to hear. No, sir, no way. Because we just want to hear the truth. Well, then I guess I am telling you what you want to hear. Boy, didn't we just tell you not to do that? Yes, sir. Okay, then. Michael Preston. That a clip from a movie I should frankly watch again. It's not, it feels like Disney Plus has everything, but they don't have Raising Arizona. It's an early Coen Brothers film, is what that film is from, or that clip is from. I think that's actually the last time Nicolas Cage was a good actor. Might have to check on that. But either way, the Cougs will be heading to Arizona next week to play in the Cheese It Bowl. And this is the last time uh, Washington State, or excuse me, the Pac-12 is tied to the Cheez-It Bowl. Uh, so this one's for all the cheese frankly. And I, I am so excited that the stakes are now raised. Washington State is the last Pac-12 representative, at least tie-in-wise, that can be in this game. So that means if we win, all the Cheez-Its are ours, guys. All the hot, And just bring me the hot and spicy ones. Actually, the white cheddar ones are pretty good, too. I really hope my, my wife wants me to run to the store to pick something up for, for dinner, because I'm going to get me some Cheez-Its. Uh, Brent Brigaman from the Colorado Springs Gazette going to stop by and preview the opponent in that football game, the Air Force Falcons, a little bit later on in the show. And then, as always, we're going to end uh, with our Dunderhead of the Week and ask Michael anything. I do actually kind of weirdly want to touch on the situation at USC a bit later on. Just kind of hang with me a little bit here. Because right now the men's basketball team is just playing a lot of really crappy teams. They didn't really have anything to talk about them with them until the beginning of January when we will do that. Um, but speaking of the beginning of January and next year, uh, National Signing Day on Wednesday. Uh, and I, I think, I, I know that the consensus has kind of been that this was a very, very underwhelming class for Washington State. And I'm, I'm, I'm fairly inclined to agree with them. I think for me, you know, getting Jaden Delora is a big get out of Hawaii, the Gatorade player of the year in the state. He's the quarterback recruit for Washington State. And frankly, everybody's going to have an opportunity to compete for that starting job uh, come fall when he will be on campus. So having a quarterback in this class, especially one who can move around a little bit, or a little bit more, it seems, than Cameron Cooper, Gunnar Cruz could, or really any quarterback they've had at Washington State under Mike Leach is encouraging. But I think what you really saw in this class, really for the first time, was that side effect of not having Ken Wilson, not having Joe Salavea, not having Jim Mastro on your staff, the guys who really did a great job of recruiting football players and the ones you needed around to make sure that you were in on those players you were kind of on the margins with a little bit. Because I think the thing is as well is that that football operations building was great and it got Washington State in line with plenty of other schools, but so many other schools are now taking steps above a building like that and it's kind of taking away what little recruiting advantage Washington State did have 
in terms of getting to Pullman. So now you're back to this Washington State's in an isolated place. They don't play a lot of good defense. So who'd want to go play there? The indoor practice facility might help with that. They don't have a ton of money for it right now. They can't take out loans to build more or to build it. So it's got to be all private. So for the time being, that's not going to be done. But I think it's kind of just a side effect of really everything. A very down year for football compared to 11 wins in 2018. A bit discouraging that you couldn't build on that more perhaps this year. But again, 6-6 six and six and a very back and forth, very weird and frightening and still has me clenched in ways 6-6. Six and six. And again, I think it's that you don't have the recruiting power that you did with those assistant coaches and oh gee where did they all go and what school just hauled in one heck of a recruiting class down in Eugene as well so you don't have those relationships that those guys did and I I think that you're really really kind of starting to see the effects of that in this class because this this screams to me you know that this is not there no relationship building that the best recruiters at this school are not at this school anymore. And it had become increasingly difficult to land the types of players that Washington State might want. The secondary is going to be an issue for a while. They only signed, I think it was 19 players today, 18 players today actually. So they have room to take a few more. And I don't doubt that once the defensive coordinator is hired, they're going to be attacking some junior college transfers for the secondary. But really, I you know, again, I think outside outside of Jaden Delora, Joey Hobart as well to a certain extent, I th- this was kind of just a little underwhelming. I'm happy that each and every one of these high school athletes has chosen to make Washington State their home. I'm thrilled that they want to come to Washington State and play and to have that relationship with that university that all of us have had but you look at those skill positions especially on defense and it's just kind of a very okay hopefully the coaches know what they're doing evaluating talent wise fingers crossed anyway everything you got on the offensive line looks exactly like it should guys who were well over six feet tall, most of them close to 300 pounds or already there. A defensive tackle in Nathaniel James from Indiana, of all places, at six foot, 250 pounds. I mean, just the depth of that position, he may be playing right away next year. You lost a secondary commit in Alakai Gilman last week. Not good. Christian Fitzpatrick decommitted earlier in the cycle. 6'4", 210 pounds. Would have been really nice to have a wide receiver like that. Jaden King decommitted. Johnny Walker decommitted. And they go, like we said, we said this in the Slack chat. You lost the kid with the booze name. You lost the kid with the booze name. You can't do that. How dare you? And then the one surprise you got on signing day was Marquise Freeman, a defensive lineman who's six foot three, 185 pounds. What? <laughs> that young man has some work to do in the weight room. But I think I think it's if you're feeling a little underwhelmed by this, if you're feeling a little bit like this could have been better, if you're you know it's like oh god, this is really not great. 
I think it's a perfectly valid way to feel. And again, I, I noted the prize was Jaden Delora, the Gatorade Player of the Year out of Hawaii and the quarterback in this class. But, I mean, a Mike Leach recruited quarterback, you haven't really had, you know, too much success with those at Washington State. We all know the situation with Tyler Holinsky, but I, I think the issue for me is that there was really nobody behind him until Anthony Gordon this year that could take the reins. But even then, there was a question of Gage Gabrud in camp. We all know now what a great year Anthony Gordon had. He broke passing records. But again, Luke Falk was a preferred walk-on. Anthony Gordon's the only scholarship quarterback that Mike Leach has had beginning to end to start at Washington State. And so while I trust his ability to evaluate quarterbacks, because again, Luke Falk was a walk-on, this is where you're really going to find out how good of a quarterback evaluator and coach Mike Leach is. Because we talked about this when Gardner Minshew started, and then we talked about it again this year when Cameron Cooper or Gunnar Cruz didn't take the reins. You're going to go three straight years with a new quarterback. And I don't know that the coaching staff, or Mike Leach specifically, wants to bring in a graduate transfer again. Are you confident enough in Gunnar Cruz, in Cameron Cooper, and I would assume Jaden Delora is going to get a long look at quarterback? So it's interesting that, you know, again, all the focus on a quarterback, and I mean, heck, even I'm focusing on it, that that, that is the prize in this class. And you go down and you've got some receivers for him to throw to, And then it's just kind of, you know, again, I think these are all kids we're going to find out about later on. You're not going to hear from any of the offensive linemen in all likelihood next year. I really doubt that. They love to put them into the weight room. One place you might see someone, Moon Ashby, an outside linebacker from San Jose. Might see him in the mix next year at linebacker just because they could use some depth there. You're definitely going to see Hunter Escoria in the mix at safety, again, just because of the depth there. Justin Anderson at cornerback probably as well. But I think that's more of a symptom of how how thin they are in the secondary than anything else. It's perfectly valid, as I said, to feel a little underwhelmed as I kind of ramble and go, you know, just kind of spit thoughts out here. It's, 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 It's perfectly natural to feel underwhelmed about a class that ranked 59th in the country. I get that it's Pullman, but that's just not that good. That's not that good. And it's fine to feel that way. Tenth in the Pac-12. We'll go over the two teams behind them. And I already talked about one of them, which is super weird. (laughs) There was another. Utah was behind Washington State today, too, until they got a few commits that pushed them up over that. But there are a couple behind them that are like, what? Huh? Oh, It's very weird. It's very, very weird. So I'm going to be interested to see how this turns out. I want it to turn out well. But as Theo Lawson noted from the Spokesman Review earlier uh, this year, all the defections in the secondary. Washington State's lost like a dozen players in the secondary over the last 15 months. That is unsustainable. And that is... I mean, it's putting you thin back there on a precarious level. And by thin, I mean just depth after an injury-wise. That doesn't mean anything about these guys' skill or how good they are at their position. 
So I think it's perfectly fair to feel a little underwhelmed by this class, especially given the last couple of seasons. But I, I really think the symptom it goes back to is you have schools have caught up facilities-wise. Washington State built that operations building. It was really sparkling and brand new, and now a lot of other schools have one. And you just don't have the recruiters on this staff like you used to. Mike Leach is still there. Eric Mealy's still there. But, I mean, there's been a lot of staff turnover. And you're finally seeing the catch-up from that. You're finally seeing the relationships break down a little bit, probably with high school coaches. You're finally seeing the bad side of all those guys leaving. And so Mike Leach has some decisions to make. I, I had a thought today that I think is relatively pertinent. You're going to find out how good or bad these defensive coaches are in recruiting, in coaching, when Mike Leach hires his new defensive coordinator. You're going to find out how good or bad they are based off of how many of these guys get let go when that new defensive coordinator comes in. Now, a lot of defensive coordinators like to have their own guys on staff, and that's fine. But I know, you know, typically you'd like to see a holdover or two. And I think you're going to find out a lot because I have a distinct feeling that if this new defensive coordinator is an outside hire, like, uh, you know, we can all hope for Jim Levitt, but it's it's hard to shoot for the stars in Pullman. I mean, yeah, shoot for the stars. You'll, you know, shoot for the moon. You still land among the stars, whatever. But shoot for the moon, Ashby. See, there you go. Now I'm just, now I'm just completely distracted. But I think you're going to find out a lot about the quality of the assistance there. The recruiting can get better. We're not going to talk about recruiting in Washington. I will not have that discussion, especially just with myself on this podcast. We will not do that. But this the this this is a symptom of Ken Wilson, Jim Mastro, Joe Salavea, Roy Manning, all these guys leaving for greener pastures is that the recruiting takes a hit. They were excellent coaches, but they were great recruiters. So a little disappointing, I think, and I think it's perfectly valid to feel that way. I've kind of tossed a word salad at you because I like to just kind of have these thoughts organically, and apparently my organic farm is rotting today. But but the good news is Brent Brigaman of the Colorado Springs Gazette, his is not... He's going to preview the Air Force Falcons next. I apologize for some of the connections issue, connection issues we had in the interview coming up. Uh, it was he was driving to Colorado to Air Force's basketball arena to report on a basketball game, and the reception apparently in rural Colorado Springs is not very good. So I do apologize in advance for that. But Brent was so kind to give us some of his time to talk about Air Force, and he goes over them incredibly thoroughly and gives you all kinds of great insights. So that's coming up next here on the Cook Center Hour. Back here on the Coog Center Hour podcast, and uh, we don't know a lot about Air Force. We don't know a lot about service academies. Washington State's only played one service academy. They played Army so many years ago. This is going to be their first time playing Air Force, and here to talk about the Falcons, Brent Brigaman from the Colorado Springs Gazette. He covers the Air Force Falcons, and uh, Brent, this is brand new to me, Air Force, uh, and what's going to be brand new to this football team is some actual warm weather in December. So is Air Force also looking forward to some cactuses and sunshine uh, just after Christmas? Absolutely. I mean, even when even when they practice indoors, they have a nice indoor facility. But Troy Calhoun, the coach, is he's sadistic in his own ways, and he leaves all the windows and doors open, and it gets cold in there. 
to oh. watch you. You've got to have a heavy coat and a hat on just to watch the indoor practices, let alone when they go outdoors. So, yes, I think all these Air Force players, because a lot of them are from Georgia and Texas, yeah. you know, like any other football team. And so I think a lot of them will be quite happy to be down in Arizona. Yeah, I don't think there's any, like, well, there are windows on uh, Chase Field, but uh, it's all going to be warm air anyway. So even if they are open, it'll be a little yes. bit better. Um, <laughs> this is their first bowl game since 2016 under head coach Troy Calhoun. You mentioned that. Is that kind of big for this program to kind of get back to – uh, going to the postseason. I mean, their bowl history is pretty laden with, you know, some kind of these mid-tier bowls just like this one, but this is probably still important to the program to get back into the postseason after a couple-year drought. Yeah, I mean, they had a run of, I believe it was 10 of 11 years mm-hmm. uh, under under Calhoun where they went to a bowl game. Then they had two years where they didn't, and they were 5-7 and seven both those years and had numerous close losses. So it's not like they had totally fallen off the map, but you know, for this for these seniors, they haven't been since they were freshmen, and a lot of them didn't make that trip. So yeah. for most of the guys in the program, this is a first. So as you know, as common as, as as common as it's been for those of us who were around the team, for the actual players, this is unique. So they are all very excited. And for Air Force, this this isn't just a mid tier bowl. This is this is one of the better bowls they can expect to get mm-hmm. just because of the Mountain West tie-ins. Right. You know, this is one that they had to jump up and you know fill a spot for the Big Twelve. So this is actually. In terms of you know prestige, even though the name Cheez It Bowl doesn't exactly <laughs> jump off the page, this is this is one of the bigger bowls Air Force can can reach. Yeah, well, good. I mean, there's going to be plenty of free cheeses, so let's see. That's that's what I'm looking forward to most is all the free cheeses. <laughs> uh, you mentioned Coach Troy Calhoun, just a couple of seasons there without a bowl, but back. Uh, to doing what he does best in Colorado Springs and going to the postseason. What has been the biggest reason for his success? Because I, I believe, uh, Brent, correct me if I'm wrong, but he's finishing up his 13th season in Colorado Springs. What's been the biggest thing uh, that has led to his success down there? Whew, I mean, overall or back to this year? I, I would say, I mean, overall, we could just say overall, sure. It's over. It's just the consistency he brings. I mean, he is uh, he is the polar opposite of Mike Leach in terms of being interesting to put, <laughs> to put a blow and it's by design i mean he is a brilliant man but he makes it as vanilla as he possibly can when he's talking to media you know he just he doesn't know anything and he just doesn't see the need to so he uh but he keeps everything very simple very you know he really by he's an air force graduate and he certainly buys into the military aspect and he likes to kind of promote that. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he's kept his uh, the staff, a lot of continuity on the staff. A lot of Air Force grads have come back and been assistants under him. Mm-hmm. So just not a lot of change. And then obviously the offense has been the same, you know, with little tweaks here and there throughout his time. And so right. basically then you look at, you know, it's how well the defense plays and then if he has the right quarterback. If those two things are in line because everything else stays the same, then mm-hmm. they tend to be better. This year those things have been in line. The triple option is is going to be something that Washington State fans have not seen. Uh, I'm sure, as you well know, I mean, it's obviously not an offense that's run at many schools. It's run at all the service academies, and Georgia Tech is even really getting away from it uh, at this point, it looks like. So can you kind of like just, I mean, a very brief kind of Cliff Notes version of when the triple option is working, what is it doing, you know, other than running the football, but when the triple option is working – what is it doing really well? Uh, just, you know, finding your soft spots, you know, because mm-hmm. they can get the ball really quickly, even on the ground, to to the edge, to, you know, off tackle, up the middle, or they can pull it back and take a deep shot, which they've done numerous times this season with long touchdown passes. So they, they just have ways of – they do all kinds of alignment sets, 
it usually comes back to a kind of a basic two wings and then one back. Mm-hmm. But within that, there's all kinds of motions and everything else. So they're looking, you're, you know, you're looking at all kinds of different, like I said, sets. And then, and then the quarterback has the flexibility, you know, to call the fullback to check out of something, you know, so he can go and see an alignment and, and call the play based on that, you know, like most offenses do, but it's just the quick hitting nature of how they run the ball. And they've got a really powerful offensive line. They always have good linemen. Yeah. And so they just, they're so much faster than anybody can ever, you know, simulate it in practice. And the ball's just on you right away. And then, and then you're surprised. I think a lot of defenses are just at the, the physicality. Right. You think, Oh, you're playing a surf. I mean, these guys are sort of undersized, although that has changed a little bit over the years to where they're closing that gap. But then you get hit in the mouth, and it's like, whoa, we didn't see that coming. And so mm-hmm. it's a surprise element. It's a quickness element. And then once you start cheating up against the run, they have ways to exploit that with the pass. So it's just, you know, it's a chess match, and they, they're they the masters of it because they're one of the few that play that style. Yeah. Is there, you know, I think a lot of fans have been thinking, you know, if, if these, these offenses are kind of the polar opposite – uh, of one another, to say the least, where Mike Leach is attacking through the air and Air Force will be doing it on the ground. And, you know, so from the standpoint of Air Force's stats looking like Wazoo's, they kind of do just in a really weird way. Washington State has a lot, a lot of receivers at, you know, over 100 receiving yards. They've got like nine guys who catch a lot of balls. It's kind of the same thing for Air Force, except for rushing the football. Uh, Caden Remsburg leads, leads the team with 906 yards. Timothy Jackson and Taven Burdo not far behind them. And Donald Hammond third, the quarterback, also over 500 yards rushing. Is there anybody on this team who's like that one really big play threat you got to keep an eye on? Or like you described earlier, it's just kind of everybody. Everybody needs to be worried about. Um, I'm sorry, you, you cut out, but... Um, in terms of the, uh, you talk about the diversity of right, yeah, kind of yeah, kind of the diversity of how many guys carry it, and and you kind of need to worry about everybody on this offense, right? Not just one, it, not just one exactly. fullback or halfback. And, yeah, and well, and Rensburg's the primary tailback, so that's where his yards come from. Right, and then Jackson and Bordeaux. Jackson got hurt, and Bordeaux was a starter early. Jackson kind of emerged, so those are the two fullbacks. But yeah, if you look at the yards per catch from the receivers, that's the number that should jump off the page because it's like twenty five for. Gerard Sanders, who, which leads the nation. And then uh, Ben Waters is even better at like 32, but he doesn't qualify for that leaderboard yet because he's a couple catches short. So, yeah. yeah, it's, you know, all of those tailbacks, like you said, it is very much the, the inverse of the passing game. But all those running backs find ways to get the ball, and so does the quarterback, you know, John Donald Hammond III. So, yeah, there's – and they're all uniquely talented. You know, the fullbacks, Timothy Jackson, I don't think he's going to play with a knee injury. Mm-hmm. But he's a pretty slippery fullback. Whereas Bordeaux's kind of the bulldozer, and then Remsburg is a four-three-five type forty, you know, just a sprinter on the outside from yeah. tailback, and then and then Hammond kind of melds all of those together. But then you got the speedy receivers who can go up and get the ball and run past guys. So it's mm-hmm. it's very much a diversified skill set within those guys, which is why they try to get the ball to all of them because then you have to worry about that as a defense with sorry. You mentioned uh, the high receiving yards per catch, and that's one thing that jumped out at me as well. I mean, Hammond's averaging, it's its this unholy amount <laughs> per catch. It's like over almost 13 yards. His receivers are, as you mentioned again, leading the nation over. I mean, Benjamin Waters is over 30 yards a catch. So when they take the top off, they seem to really like to take the top off. What, what, what should Wazoo look for in terms of 
leading them to believe that all of a sudden that shot is coming, or is it just kind of they'll take it at any time? They'll take it at any time, but what makes them so good is that they take it, you know, I mean, obviously there's passing situations where they, you know, if they get a second and one, you better be on your toes because they, you know, they, they're they built to go for a fourth down. So they, mm-hmm. they certainly don't mind being in third and short because then they'll, they'll just go on fourth down too. But, you know, but the, the the mastery of it is that they they do it when you don't see it coming. Mm-hmm. You know, it'll be a totally running down, and they'll they'll suddenly take a shot. And yeah, it's been one this season. And one of the one of those well, two of those catches came against Colorado. So he's done it against a Pac-12 team, and his story has just been amazing. He was a, he's a Denver kid, so he's one of the few local players right. on the team. And uh, you know, he didn't play really his first three years. He moved around from offense to safety on defense. And then finally this year got a got a spot and has just been spectacular. So, you know, he's been a fun story. Uh, defensively for Air Force, I think the one thing that jumped out uh, at me, Brent, was the 52 tackles for a loss uh, so far this season. That's an awful lot. I mean, the quick math back of the napkin says a little over four a game for me. Uh, what leads to them being able to get into the backfield so effectively? Is it just their defensive line, their linebackers? What allows them uh, to make plays behind the line of scrimmage? I mean, it's it, well, it's scheme for one. They mm-hmm. you know they they come after it. They bring a lot of pressure because they you know they trust their corners to play a lot of man, and so they they don't like them to leave them out there very long. So they they're doing that because they're bringing linebackers, they're crashing ends, they're doing anything they can to you know produce some pressure on the quarterback. And so when they're doing that, obviously you're going going to get some some yards you know some lost yardage. But over the years, they've been very susceptible to big plays too. Mm-hmm. So you know how they'll how they'll come out and play Washington State with all those receivers and everything else. It remains to be seen. I mean, I've seen it against traditional offenses, but I haven't really seen them against very many spread teams like this, or right. however you technically describe that formation. But mm-hmm. but generally, yes, they are they they overcome you know their their lack of abilities from like you know lack of better word by bringing pressure and by just being different looks and different things like that. Yeah. So that's where those stats come from. I think you mentioned uh, as well in there that they haven't really seen an offense like this. I mean, the air rate is, you know, at least in the way Mike Leach runs it is pretty unique these days. He really hasn't changed it uh, too terribly much over his almost two decades worth of being a head coach. Um, is that something you think the Air Force defensive coaches are worried about? Because like you mentioned, this is just not something they've ever seen before. And blitzing against this offense isn't necessarily what's going to lead to success considering how good Washington State actually has a pretty decent offensive line. Yeah, I mean, they're definitely worried about it, and rightfully so. And, you know, last year particularly, the, the pass defense was a weakness. You know, mm-hmm. part of that was because they sold out to stop the run, then part of that was just because they were getting exploited on one-on-one matchups. And throughout the years, they've, you know, they've just had trouble with Air Force cornerbacks covering big-time receivers. And so now you throw in, you know, talented Pac-12 receivers in a scheme that is, you know, so perfectly created under him. So it's going to be a huge order. I mean, the, there's really not, you know, San Jose State throws the ball a lot, and they, they played really well in that game. Hawaii mm-hmm. puts the ball up a lot, and again, that was a 30-point win. So they've had some success against teams that put it up, but again, mm-hmm. they put it up in a different way than, than Mike Leach does. So, yeah. you know, Air Force proving they can stop that is going to be huge. And and the other thing is they've, they've always started against high-powered offenses. You know, it's just for whatever reason, they'll usually – they're often down fourteen nothing, twenty one seven, and then they kind of get the get the ball going with their offense, and they can mm-hmm. make those into games. So, I wouldn't assume if Washington State does start out that it's going to be you know it, the game's going to get away from Air Force, but I also 
wouldn't be surprised to see that scenario play out where Washington State has a few good drives before Air Force starts to figure things out and get yeah. you know get its offense rolling. These are uh, military cadets, after all, so they are very uh, stone-like, and as you mentioned, their head coach is very no-nonsense. Do you get any sense of nervousness from this team? They are, I believe, playing for their most wins since 1998 when they had 12. They've had a few 10-win seasons under Troy Calhoun. Is there any sense of nervousness for them, do you think, in this game, knowing that they can get to 11 wins? No, I I think... The mindset of this season, I mean, they were so crushed after losing the Navy because two weeks before that, they had lost a close game at Boise State. So that basically put the conference out of reach. I mean, there was, you know, it was still, you, you were going to need two Boise State losses at that right. point, and that just doesn't happen. And then when they lose to Navy, that was a Chiefs trophy. So their stakes were basically taken away in week five. And so then they just wanted to get ranked. They wanted to get to a bowl game. And in that, in the process, they've won seven in a row. So I think mm-hmm. they've built a ton of confidence and continuity, and it's become kind of a senior-led team, which I thought going into the year, the junior class was going to be the one to kind of, you know, make or break this season, and it became the seniors. So I think when you have senior athletes at a cadet, you know, academy, they're not going to get overwhelmed by yeah. nervousness or goals like you know a win total. I think they're very businesslike, and they're. But again, there it's a team that's kind of come together and gotten things rolling. And so I I don't see that stopping unless this long break kind of breaks that continuity. We're a little more uh, than a week away from the game as we record this, Brent. Do you have any thoughts on a possible final score in this one? I think I looked at S&P Plus. It's very much a... Both of these teams' strengths is their offense, and both of their weaknesses is their defense, much more to the uh, extremes for Washington State than Air Force, perhaps. But... Uh, do you have a prediction this early on for how you think this game's going to go? Uh, you know, I, I I usually steer away from too many predictions mm-hmm. as a straight-up beat rider, but I, I think Air Force is going to have success on offense. Right. So then it becomes, do they stop them? And I don't know. And I also don't know exactly what they're going to be in this game. If Air Force is able to reel off some eight, nine, ten-minute drives with that offense. So mm-hmm. suddenly what you think would be a shootout becomes, you know, it can't just because the ball's just you know, not that. You just have many opportunities, so it wouldn't surprise me if Air Force won somewhere in the neighborhood of thirty, you know, thirty to twenty-six. But mm-hmm. you know, I also wouldn't be surprised if it did end up fifty-six, fifty-eight, or something in that ballpark. So I could see a lot of scenarios, but I do think Air Force will win. I just think yeah. their offense is so unique, and they they have so many yards. I think it's just going to be demoralizing for Washington State to deal with that. That the but who knows? Yeah, I can't do another high scoring game like that. I've had enough against the one like like the one against Oregon State. My heart can't take it. I'll just be, I'll just be keeled over and dead uh, in my in my TV room after that. Brent, bring him in from the Colorado Springs Gazette. You can read his coverage about Air Force uh, all this week and next week leading up to the game. I know he's looking forward to some time uh, in Arizona. So Brent, thank you very much uh, and enjoy the Cheez It Bowl. Please get a Cheez It Taco or something for me. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. Our thanks again to Brent for joining us here on the show. You can follow his work at the Colorado Springs Gazette. He's got you covered on Air Force leading up to the Cheez-It Bowl. It's for all the Cheez-Its. I can't not say that enough. Can't not say that enough. I can't say that enough. That's what I really mean. Uh, I mentioned in the first part of the show that Washington State was 10th in the Pac-12 and recruiting rankings. And when I say that, usually folks go, oh, you know, Oregon State or Colorado is behind them or, you know, something like that. So, you know, other schools that are... Kind of typically, you know, they don't recruit well and they need to do a lot with what they have on hand to win. But no, Oregon State was actually ahead of Washington State. 
uh, today. Jonathan Smith doing some good work in Corvallis down there, which is frightening. Don't want to lose to Oregon State, but probably will next year. Um, Arizona behind uh, Washington State in the Pac-12, according to 24-7. That's not too big of a surprise, I guess. Kevin Sumlin doesn't have a lot good going on in Tucson. But number 12 in the Pac-12 conference in recruiting rankings is USC. Oh my goodness gracious me. I am I I am here for the saltiness. I am here for the USC Trojan fan tears. I am here for all of it. Because perhaps no better example in the Pac-12, other than maybe Washington and Oregon for that matter, of a fan base more full of themselves and more full of what they deserve than USC. And actually, I will amend that. There is no other fan base quite like that. Because my God, the... (laughs) The social media of any USC fan on Wednesday was incredible. But especially that of Scott Wolf, who writes, I believe, for the LA Times at Inside USC on Twitter. Just constant swipes at Clay Helton, at the new AD, Mike Bond, at the president of the university. You go into any mention on Facebook, Twitter, social media, at all of the president of USC and it is just filled with why didn't you fire Clay Helton? Why did you hire an AD that didn't fire Clay Helton? Blah, 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 blah. And I, 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 I have to wonder if more USC fans don't realize that, yeah, it's, you know, all these people in the AD, they only care about making money, blah, 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 blah. But, and I just did the blah, blah, blah thing a lot, but that maybe part of the reason USC retained Clay Helton was because they realized what a mistake they made in letting go of a guy who currently has the number one ranked team in the country and is in a college football playoff semifinal. And that maybe they value the, you know, uh, the consistency of Clay Helton. He His team did go, what, like 9-3, and 8-4? and four. I don't even know what I'm talking about. But they won a bunch of games with a backup quarterback. They had a third-string quarterback out there a lot. They had a third-string quarterback out there at a time. I have no idea how they did that. How did they do that? <laughs> SC lost three times. Four times, excuse me. Notre Dame, so they're eight and four. So, I, you know, I, I understand where SC might be coming from, saying, you know what? We think Clay Helton can do it. So why throw ourselves, you know, to the, you know, why throw ourselves into the sea looking for another coach? I don't know if that's a metaphor, but why put ourselves out there and do that again? Especially because it seems like Urban Meyer is not interested. He's interested in an NFL job, potentially. So if Urban Meyer is not interested, why bother? If he said no, which he probably did, I would expect he did, why bother? But it amazes me. All the... Issues surrounding this program, rumors swirling, everything, and all about, you know, we didn't know if Clay Helton was going to remain employed or not. Lynn Swan was a horrible idea, and it all leads. It, can, it shows you that, you know, I don't put a lot of stock in, you know, outside stuff affecting recruiting too much. Kids care mostly about the coaches and the program itself. Mostly. <laughs> Until it gets to a point 
like it did with SC, where every single day, if you lived in Southern California, you could not escape the rumor that Clay Helton was going to be fired, that they were looking elsewhere, that SC was definitely going to fire him and hire Urban Meyer, or they were going to fire him and move on to somebody else, some other great big coach, whatever else. And you completely neuter your head coach's ability to recruit or any of his assistants. And perhaps here's the best part. If what was being leaked to the press was coming from inside the house, you just completely neutered your coach's ability to recruit. And then when you hired a new athletic director who didn't fire him, now you're stuck. Now you're screwed. Did you ever consider for one freaking moment that the new athletic director would retain Clay Helton instead of getting rid of him. I think, I I assume this as well. I assumed Clay Helton was DOA at the end of the final week of the season, assuming that Utah didn't lose to Colorado. I just assumed that on Sunday morning, SC would be making an announcement that he would be you know, uh, uh, sent to a farm upstate (laughs) or something. But they didn't. Mike Bond retained him. And that surprised me. I'm not too surprised when athletic directors hold on to coaches in their first, you know, few... I mean, Bond had only been on the job, like, what, a month when that happened? But it is impossible. So I'm not surprised when ADs retain coaches, but... It's not impossible to follow that situation from afar, but it's also not impossible to make that decision at an institution like USC. But I, I'm I'm still amazed, and as amazed as I still can be in a day and age of social media and instant reactions, to be on there and see just the incredible amount of self-importance and 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 just nose up one's own butt that USC fans have. Absolutely indignant at this recruiting class, given everything that went on around this team, that school, and everything else. It's easy pickings for Oregon, for Washington, for Arizona State, for Stanford, for Cal, for Wazoo. Anybody who wants to go into Southern California and recruit any of those kids, all you got to do is say, hey, look, you know our head coach is going to be here. Even even UW could have done that. Knowing, like with Chris Peterson quitting and Jimmy Lake being the head coach, even UW can do that. UO can do that because they committed to Mario Cristobal and he hired all of Wazoo's best assistants. Stanford can do it because they're never firing David Shaw. Arizona State can do it because they've had success under Herm Edwards and they've got like every ex-NFLer it's possible to have on their staff. They can all go into Southern California and take all those really good kids from you. When your fans do nothing but dump on the football team and dump on the coach and dump on the AD and dump on the president of the university and dump on the university itself, all that crap. The admission scandal probably not helping. But it all just coalesces into this beautiful, salty little dish I get to eat up in late December on signing day. Because my God, 
the level of indignation is incredible. I, I just take 10 minutes. Make yourself happy. If you're having a stressful last week of work before Christmas, just go on Twitter, Facebook, whatever. And I know it's it's the comments, but just go read. Just go read a few. Just do just do your Uncle Michael a favor. Go and do it. You won't regret it, I promise. But it still is amazing, even with all of that, that the University of Southern California has the worst ranked recruiting class in the conference. Absolutely superb. <laughs> it is incredible. Because there is some validity to, you know, the conference needs SC to be good to be nationally relevant. SC is the brand for this conference. And they will not be with that recruiting class. But what it will allow is other teams in the conference to be good on a national stage. Utah needed to beat Oregon to do that, probably. And next year, it's probably going to be two teams in the North battling it out again for that conference championship. But Lord knows SC from the South ain't going to challenge them. That entire situation is just absolutely hilarious from an outsider's perspective. But I just... The anger and the vitriol and the indignation and everything else directed at that athletic department and university on a minute-by-minute minute basis. I won't even go day-to-day. Day, I'll go minute-by-minute. Minute, is incredible. And unlike anything you are going to see out West, it is as close as you can get to SEC fans. I promise you that. Just, just a couple minutes out of your day, you will not be disappointed. Dunderhead of the Week. Ask Michael anything on the other side of the fight song here on the Food Center. It's been a little while since we were last in your eardrum, so I've had plenty of time to think on this dunderhead, but I, I think I come back around to the same one every year, and don't go check the receipts because I'm not sure if I do, but it's an annoyance I have every year, and it's with people who are in mall or large store parking lots at Christmas, putting their blinker on to wait for a parking spot to open that's not going to open for five minutes and then everybody else behind them has to sit there for five minutes so the entire process of actually parking your car at the mall or store that you are at takes longer than actually going inside of the store and purchasing your wares for giving to your loved ones. Please move on. 
If you can see that it's going to take so long, please move on and do not be inconsiderate to everybody else behind you and take up more time, very valuable time out of their day because I know people work hard and they have kids to pick up from daycare and they have kids to drop off from daycare and they have elderly parents to take care of. They have taxes to take care of. They have other things to take care of. They have things to send. They have things to receive. They have gifts to buy for people that they care about and they would like to get this taken care of quickly so they can spend more time with those people that they care so much about. So don't sit there like an idiot with your blinker on while you're waiting for that poor woman to load 10 bags into the back of her minivan. She's breaking her back doing it. You're not even getting out to help her do that, to maybe help, help her vacate the space more quickly, move right along to somewhere else, perhaps further up the parking garage where you might actually miraculously find many parking spots open as I've been so accustomed to finding every time I go to the bloody mall. No, instead you're going to sit there like an idiot taking up everybody else's extremely valuable time that they could be using doing literally anything else other than staring at your freaking tailpipes just so you can have that spot. Don't. Thank you, Uller. Ask Michael anything time. Perfect punctuation on that. Ooh. I actually need to light a cigarette after that. Last a little right there. Ask Michael anything time. At Vince G55, Vince Grippy, here's my question. Do you really like Big Thunder Mountain Railroad more than Space Mountain? Please explain another of the many wrong choices you've made in your life. I was at Disneyland last week and visiting my sister. And yes, Vince, I like Big Thunder Mountain Railroad more. It's outdoors. I prefer roller coasters that are outdoors. The turns are more fun and sharp. I don't like being in the dark and not knowing exactly where I'm heading. I don't prefer that. The turns are way more fun. You can stare at the goat all the way around that one corner. I think it's a little bit quicker. And also, when I was really young, my parents thought it would be a good idea to take me on Space Mountain and down like that really, you know, all the way down the, you know, the queue line and like all the space things. It just kind of creeped me out. Didn't make me very comfortable. At Chris McKinterf, Chris McKinterf, what's your go-to game day tradition, both for when you're in Pullman and when you're watching at home? Man, we got a lot. I think if there's like one I can't, I cannot miss. It's it's probably stopping at the Coog and Valhalla for a beer in each at least. I I, I can't miss that. I I just I I I have to do that every time. At Danny P seven ninety three Daniel Patrick, when you're eating cereal and you have milk left in your bowl, do you drink the milk or add more cereal? Huh? <laughs> not to be not to. Give you too big a window into my life. I'd never thought of the second one. I always drank the milk, but now I'm going to do the second one. That sounds a lot better. At Dobi Wan Kenobi, John Drabovich, I think. What do you expect from Lamonte McDougal next year? More, hopefully, right? I mean, we're expecting a little bit more, hopefully, whether we get that out of him. I'm not sure. He seemed to have some flashes of good play this year, although I'm not sure you can expect him on the field for every snap. So, more. That would be good. At Sports with Neil, WSU Women's Soccer Stan account. Worst type of Christmas tree decorations. White lights. Which my wife has on the tree right now. We trade out every uh, year. I get colored lights on my ears. Multicolored lights. She gets the white lights uh, this year. Other than that, I will say the icicle lights you put on the outside of the house. Put a little effort in. Like, don't just slap them on a gutter, call it good. I just... I just at Devin Lewis 89 Devin Lewis, favorite Christmas present you ever received? He's also asking, best Christmas present you've ever given? Uh, best I've ever received was my Nintendo 64. And then my wife also gave me a new copy of Mario Kart for that a few years ago. That was a great Christmas present. 
I think the best I've ever given. Man. I don't know. Actually, I think the one I'm giving my wife this year. But I can't tell you what that is. Because she could well, she's probably not listening, but still not gonna tell you what it is. That would spoil the surprise. I spent a lot of time thinking about it, so. That's a pretty good one. Pretty good one. At Ryan Callie 18, Ryan Callahan. I love Disneyland, so I'm gonna follow up my with my question from last time and your trip. Ryan asked us a lot of questions all in one. It was great last time. Favorite ride, least favorite, most overrated, most underrated, and this applies for both parks. I haven't spent a lot of time in California Adventure, so I honestly can't tell you. I love Grizzly River Rapids. My sister and I once rode it seven times in a row. I dang near got walking pneumonia from that. So I, I think I like that one best over there. Favorite ride is Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. Least favorite is... It's a small world. I just, it's, yeah. Most overrated, and again, this little controversial. Jungle Cruise. The puns are all the same. It's the same ride. Whatever. Most underrated ride, huh? We did the Millennium Falcon one, although that's probably not underrated. Everybody knows that one. That was That's the new one in Star Wars Land. I think I will go with... Man, that's a tough one, actually. Mm. No, I'm going to go with the train around the park. You know why? Because you can rest. Take that baby around, and it takes you to a new location. Yeah, you can rest on that one. Haunted Mansion, too. That, too. And actually, going back, Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, in terms of overrated. It's okay. Uh, also, another question. I'd love to hear your Pac-12 Bowl watchability rankings. Uh, Rose Bowl is always number one. I always watch that game. Uh, and then I, it usually just kind of falls down in order. Although I'll usually put the Vegas Bowl up there because I feel like the Mountain West team's usually pretty good. And it should be a pretty good matchup this year as well. So I'll go like Rose Bowl, Alamo Bowl, Vegas Bowl, Holiday Bowl, Sun Bowl all the way at the bottom no matter what. Actually with the Red Box Bowl, I can't stand that either. And then the Cheez-It Bowl number one this year, obviously. Washington State, 34, Air Force 31. We're not going to see you again before Christmas. The bowl game's a little too close. So have a wonderful, wonderful Christmas or Hanukkah, whichever you are celebrating next week. We will see you after the season is over. We'll recap it, then we'll talk some basketball into the new year here on the Cook Center Hour.